You're listening to Shift, Human First Financial Guidance with Ross Marino. Today, we are shifting the conversation with Dr. Phil Perlman. Hey there. Hey, Ross. How are you, man? Good to talk to you. So glad to have you on the show. I have binge read your newsletters. I I followed some media, watched some interviews. You got a great history. Before we dive in and start talking about what you're working on now, how about a good 60 seconds? Here's where I've been. Here's how I got to where I am today. Very quickly, uh, when I was a kid, I was an athlete, and that's foreshadow. Uh, I went to uh, graduate school and became a psychologist. Uh, so I am a, a doctor of psychology. Um, I went and worked at a hedge fund and helped launch that back in the day. Uh, it was behaviorally focused. Then I went uh, and helped found stock twits and invested and started making investments in social media startups. Uh, then I went to Yahoo Finance and helped them build uh, Tumblr Network uh, after they bought Tumblr. Then I went to a bank and helped them develop their digital media, uh, a publicly traded bank called Bank Bank, OZ, uh, bank OZK. Uh, it used to be called Bank of the Ozarks. Some people will, will, will remember them as that. Sure. Um, then I went to Osprey Funds and was their chief marketing officer and chief behavioral officer. And uh, I recently resigned my position there and have started my own endeavor called the Pearl Institute, focused on uh, personal health planning and the parallel between health and wealth planning. That's what I'm doing now. And I'm that is a passion play on my part. Um, and I'm just really excited uh, to be focusing on that. I went through my own health journey. Um, I did my own survey and long-term planning um, for myself and got my own act together, got uh, fit. Um, And now I want to uh, share that and help to inspire uh, fitness across our population and uh, really focusing in on the advisor community because there's so many similarities between health and wealth planning. So when I look at your resume, it's way longer, of course, and impressive than you described. So I appreciate the cliff notes, but I I looked down the list and thought, well, that's cool. Well, that's kind of cool. Hey, that's neat. But I'll tell you what jumped out at me. You were a chief behavioral strategist before I started seeing that title. So Mm -hmm. now we're seeing it more and more. And many firms are trying to shift the conversation to human first financial guidance, but you were a chief behavioral strategist a few years ago. What was it like in the early years when you had this title that I'd imagine a lot of people weren't even sure what you did? Well, here's the thing. I came at uh, behavioral finance and behavioral economics from the psychology angle. So most people go into finance, they begin learning about it and they learn but uh, really, you know, Kahneman and Tversky were social psychologists and they were they were decision theorists. Right. And that is a branch of social psychology. And they were actually uh, psychologists in the Israeli army working or Israeli Air Force war, working with fighter pilots and their decision making. 
going, I'm going way back in their history, way before uh, Kahneman won the uh, the Nobel Prize in economics. So that's where they were coming. So this is really a you know, uh, behavioral economics is a is a, an integration of economics and psychology social psychology. And so I was coming from the psychology end because that's what I got my my degree in. And uh, what I found was that simply pointing out the thinking and behavioral problems that we all have around money that are instinctual and uh, uh, biological, right, that we all have, that we all have these tendencies to make the same types of mistakes and um, they're universal. And that's why so many people relate to them, right? Um, pointing them out from a descriptive point of view is one thing. Promoting change, prescriptive, not descriptive, is really another. And so with my background, I had a background in understanding how people change, processes of change. There's a whole, there's a whole science to that within the clinical psychology realm. So that was really the thing to me that made me really, really interested in this stuff. I was always interested in markets. And then when I discovered that there was a psychology markets, I was like, wow, it's like a fish to water. Um, but to me, the, the, the key is, I mean, everybody has, you know, something about anything that they do that, that really resonates to me. The thing that resonated was this idea of promoting rational change or adaptive change. That's what I'm, that's what I'm actually focused on now, uh, as well, but that was the thing for me. And that I think is really where the rubber hits the road because we all, by now, and probably, you know, 95% of the advisors watching this have some knowledge of uh, behavioral economics, and they understand what the biases are, and they've heard of all that stuff, and they know what confirmation bias is in a very surfacey way. But to get down under that, and to think about how we can make changes uh, to ourselves and what uh, to our behavior and also to our clients behavior. I mean, and that's really the thing that excites me about this whole, this whole field. And financial knowledge is required, uh, table stakes, no doubt. But if you're really going to help people make decisions and affect change, we have to understand the human side. And I love that it's being talked about more and more your, your newsletter chock full of goodies in there. I just retweeted one of them. Uh, I love the first line off of it. It says, there's only one true benchmark and it's staring us in the mirror. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, um, we can only compare ourselves to ourselves. And every other comparison that we ever make is a false comparison. If we're comparing ourselves to our neighbors, if we're comparing ourselves to somebody on Instagram that looks like they have such an incredible life, if we're comparing ourselves to our siblings, you know, sibling rivalry exists for, you know, that saying exists for a reason, right? All of those are false, false benchmarks because we all are individuals and we all have our own story and we all have our own lives. And none of them are the same as our neighbor or our siblings or the people on Instagram or anybody else. And as long as we are improving, as long as we are getting a little, even if it's just incremental, 
even if it's just a, 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 a three yards and a cloud of dust, as they say in football, a year, that is the, the right direction. Because not going anywhere or going in the wrong direction is really sort of a quality of our society that we live in, that we're all a part of. We're all a part of this culture that has a lot of problems. And there's a toxicity to our culture. There's a lot of negativity out there. I was reading the other day that negative headlines are skyrocketing. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, 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 ill health, a lot of metabolic ill health, a lot of uh, severe obesity and other types of health problems that are lifestyle that are really a part of our culture. And so going against that trend is a subversive act these days. So getting healthy or, you know, and saving money is the same thing, right? Diligently, patiently, putting money away and not getting caught up in what in, in the zeitgeist when everybody's bullish or whatever. As a matter of fact, there was a quote from JP Morgan. I don't remember the exact quote, but he said something about how, you know, nothing is more disruptive to a person than seeing his neighbor get rich, you know? And the thing about that quote is that I don't buy it. I don't buy it. JP Morgan was an egomaniac. Right. Was he brilliant? Yes. But he was, an, he was difficult to work with. He was an egotist. And that was his framework. His benchmark was the other people out there who were the captains of industry, right? The other very wealthy people getting wealthier. And so if he saw one of them have something more or better than he did, that's how he reacted. And just because it's a quote, doesn't mean we have to go nodding our heads thoughtlessly and saying, hey, it's true. We can say, no, you know what? That isn't that that may have been true for him. He was a narcissist. It's not necessarily true for me. I can be my own benchmark. So I have a mirror right here. I look in the mirror and I say, okay, what can I do for myself? Where I'm at now, who I am, whether it's my physical, mental, spiritual health, or whether it's my bank account and the money that I'm saving for the future. So I am my only true benchmark. That is a, you know, that, that, that's a strong current in my own journey and in my thinking. I think personally, I I've experienced that it's that I, I think I got it from strategic coach originally years ago when they talked about progress versus perfection and perfection being the horizon. And no matter how fast you walk or how far you walk, the horizon's out there. It's unreachable, unreachable. But what matters is progress. And when that gets into you as a business owner, as a parent, as a person, it, it really does shift your thinking. And you know, we've got clients, of course, that we're working with. They're looking at numbers. They're looking at statements they're looking at their neighbors or they're looking at peers. And that's certainly going to be something that they bring up. Clients often lead with financial questions or financial situations they're facing. And as advisors, we need to sometimes shift that conversation to something that's more relevant or that gets to why. And I know you have a few areas that you're really putting emphasis on right now. What are some ways for advisors to shift the conversation? And where do you think we should go before we try to dive into all the numbers? You know, I think one of the things that we can do is we can acknowledge what they're saying, hear, hear what they're saying, and then to give them constructive feedback on who they are, 
and where they've come from. Say, yeah, you know, I know that you may. Here's the thing. If you're keeping up with the Joneses, even if you surpass the Joneses, it's never enough. It's like a cup with a hole in it. You put water in the cup and the hole drains the water out and then you have to pour, pour more water in. So if you're trying to keep up with the Joneses, you will never fill that cup. There will always be that hole. And so by acknowledging where they're at, number one, and then if they have made some progress in with the man in the mirror over time, you know, let's say last year they were sitting at, you know, X uh, assets, and now they're sitting at X plus one assets. That's something that we can point out to them. And really what that is, and you hear uh, behavioral economists and you hear some advisors even talking about this, that is a reframing. You're, you're experientially reframing it. You're saying, you know, you're pointing out and they look at you as an authority in the area of money. And so if you're helping them to reframe it and you're saying to them, hey, you know, I noticed that last year you had this much and this year you have th that much and you're moving in the right direction. You're continuing with your plan. You have a long-term plan. You're really doing this. You're one year closer or whatever it is. Maybe it's a 529 or whatever that, that is. Just by pointing it out to them that you're noticing that and giving them credit for it as that figure of, well, he's the person who knows or she's the person who knows this stuff, that they hear that and they take it in. That to me, it's a validation, it's empathic, and it's a frame for them that is a more constructive frame than the back of my head, you know, the Joneses just bought a, a, a Tesla or, a, or, or, you know, a fancy car or whatever. And in this environment right now, at the time of recording, we're in a bear market. Uh, right. Lots of fear, lots of anxiety for people out there. If we do what you're suggesting, that really shifts the conversation where when they show progress, it sounds like we'll be able to be grateful for here's where we were and here's where we've come. How important is it to experience gratitude, be grateful, and how much of a, an attack on anxiety is that? You know, gratitude is magical. And uh, sharing joy is magical. There are, mindfulness is magical. Sleep is magical. There are things that we don't fully understand why, but we know that they are constructive, life-affirming, positive. And so if we touch on any one of those, and in this case, we're talking about being grateful for the things that we do have, that in and of itself, just by virtue of what it is, do we understand exactly why? Listen, I'm a shrink. I don't understand why. I don't. But we know that it's natural law. We know that it's just a human thing, that gratitude is a positive experience. Joy for ourselves and our family and others is a positive experience. Walking and thinking or meditating is a positive experience, and it builds on that positivity. So gratitude, for whatever reason, is a super positive experience that will help to de-escalate anxiety, worry, 
negative affect, negative mood of any kind. So I can't, you know, I can't recommend it enough, even if I don't understand it completely. Glad you asked about that. Super powerful. And there's more, it's multiple levers there. You know, it, it's not just gratitude. There's more to it than that. There is, uh, you know, uh, uh, spiritual well-being and uh, physical physical well-being and mood, all of those things uh, affect our experience of life and uh, what we're heading towards. Now, how does this relate to the most boring superpower ever? That was one of your great newsletter articles. The most boring superpower ever. What was it again? I don't even remember what it was. When I say saw, it, I remember. I saw the title and I wrote it down. I'm like, oh, I got to ask him about this. That's well, here's the thing. Ago. No, no, no. I, I know what it is. Here's <laughs> the thing about it. Okay. There are a few. Okay. Here's the thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a a, a broader brush than I did in in writing. Here's the thing. Thriving and being healthy and being responsible with our money and saving and planning is nothing, uh, not, none of those things are complicated things. They are all boring. They're all boring. And walking is, you know, you think of it and you're like, walking, really? Really, Phil? Is that what you're going to tell me? You're not going to tell me some, you know, sexy exercise or yoga pose that's some shit, right? No, I'm not. There's not an end. There's a ton of people out there selling stuff and they're like, oh, I have this fancy schmancy thing and I have a great name for it. And it's spirulina or some other concoction. You know, there's a million concoctions. You know, there's a superfood every, every month. There's a new superfood. All of that is BS. The real superpowers are the most boring things in the world, right? So it is taking a walk. It is getting a good eating real food. It is spending time with your family. It is putting money away like religiously every month, even if it's just a small amount. It is living below your means. It is all of these things that are boring things that we discount or take for granted because they're not sexy and they're not so they're not a, a convertible or whatever your kind of your you know whatever your thing is and that is really the, the the larger point of that concept is that the real superpowers are incredibly boring things i mean putting money into a low fee broad market etf every quarter for the rest of your life and not having to think about the market at all or what energy stocks are doing or SaaS stocks or whatever the hot new toy is or chasing or doing anything else, it's boring. But that's where the wisdom is. So really, you know, I was talking about, you know, I think I was talking about walking, but really it's, there, there's multiple, all, all of the best superpowers are all really kind of boring. And as I hear you describe it, it's it's not just that they're boring. I certainly get that. But it also sounds like they are all accessible 
You don't have to have your doctorate in psychology. You don't have to be a financial wizard. You don't have to meditate for two hours every day. These are things that if you add them to your routine, to your lifestyle, they're simple, they're accessible, but they're actually superpowers. Exactly. As a matter of fact, funny, quick story about um, meditating. I never could meditate. Like I never, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little ADHD and I just never got it, you know, pay attention to your breathing and sit quietly. And I was, no, I, I just couldn't. And I never really got it. And then I was reading something one day uh, where someone said, I think it was Philip Glass, the, the composer, he's a, uh, a Buddhist. And he said something, and, and it was like unrelated, but he said something about meditating. He was like meditating. Oh, he was quoting somebody else. And he was like, meditating is just paying attention, you know? And then once he said that, it completely clicked with me. And I realized that I meditate when I walk because I just walk and kind of think about things. And then I got back from a walk and I Googled walking meditation. And I found out that there's a whole thing about walking meditation. It's a whole thing in and of itself. And I was like, okay, and now I get it. And it was a simple, it was just a simple, it was just going for a walk is really all there is. All that is maybe putting, you know, turning your phone off and going for a walk. That's it. So, um, so yeah, it's really all simple stuff. You don't have to do, you know, you don't have to be able to do, uh, you know, to bench press 300 pounds or squat 300 pounds or deadlift 500 pounds, none of that stuff. Just really, you know, a little patience and putting money away incrementally over a long period of time and walking and eating real foods and, you know, making sure you get some sleep. And that's really all there is to, uh, you know, all there is to the long-term wisdom. I remember years ago trying meditation for the first time, and it was a three-minute session that I was supposed to meditate. And you know, full disclosure, it was the most agonizing hour of my life. Right? It it was torture. It, it seemed like the hardest thing in the world. But as I studied it and I, I learned more about it, it really is about being present. But the effects of it, the benefits of it, there there's so much science behind it. The more you look into it, to be present. Uh, it impacts all areas of your life. It's, you know, you mentioned it as a superpower. A lot of people believe that's one of the superpowers out there. Um, how about one last thing? You mentioned Groundhog Day bias. Uh, that was one of your older newsletters. Do you remember what that was? Yes. Yeah, so the ground, this, this one's actually really, really important for the advisor community. Okay. So there is this concept. There is this human bias we are all present biased, right? We all think more about the present than we do the future. We feel more about the present than we do the future. We care more about the present than we do the future to a degree that is unhealthy and unwise to our future self. And behavioral economists have a fancy term for it, um, uh, discounting, some kind of discounting. I forgot the fancy term, but it was some kind of, if you look on my on my website, I have a whole definition of it. It wasn't, it wasn't hedonic discount. It was something, it was whatever. 
And uh, we are all present bias. And it makes total sense when you think about it, because we're here in the present. Sure. So we're feeling the present, right? Somebody puts a piece of cake in front of me and I'm like, wow, that's my fit. Carrot cake is my favorite cake. It's a big piece. There's a fork. I'm going to eat it right now. And I'm not going to think about myself in 30 years and how that may affect my, my, my health span and my lifespan and how I feel in the future. And then guess what? Tomorrow, put that same cake ahead of me. Tomorrow will become today in 24 hours. So let's skip ahead 24 hours. And you put the cake in front of me again. And I say, oh man, that's my favorite cake. Give me a fork. I'm going to eat it. And I'm not going to think about it. So we are always present biased. And that is the Groundhog Day bias, right? We're always thinking about this moment. So when Bill Murray is in the cafe and he doesn't get, he doesn't care, he doesn't give up, you know what? And he's stuffing his face with pies right in front of the uh, woman that he really has a crush on. He doesn't care because he knows he's going to live that same day again tomorrow. And so I'm really just playing on the movie there. And the there's a cure for Groundhog Day bias. We all have that. We have it when it comes to money and we have it when it comes to health. Um, and as a matter of fact, the future curve of how we care about money, it's proven. It's it's been it's been it's been evident there's an evidence basis to it that you go out just a little ways in the future and how much we care about what happens then just falls off a table. It's like the curve is like this. It's like a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's what, 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 what do you call that when futures, this um, it's like a tango, yeah. you know, for you, uh, you know, for you, uh, 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 commodity traders out there, it, 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 the way we think about the futures in contango all the time, we value the future much lower than we value the present. So there's a cure for that though. And here's the cure. And this is, this is, this is good stuff. This is what I was talking about before being prescriptive, not descriptive. So there's a way to raise the value we put on the future. And that is by connecting our heart to it, connecting our emotions to it. And we can connect our emotions to it by visualizing that future vividly. So this is something that we can do, whether we're talking about money in the advisor space or whether we're talking about health, uh, health planning. So whether we're talking about wealth planning or health planning, and that is visualize that future you in great detail. How do I look? How do I feel? What am I wearing? Who am I with? What do I love to do? What, what are my, what are my greatest uh, priorities? You know, maybe it's seeing my you know, grandchildren who don't even exist yet get married or what that's, that's what it is with me. That's the thing with me, but visualize that vividly, write it out and keep it with you. Come back to it frequently because what that does is that creates the emotional resonance into that thing in the future. Because really what we're doing is we're devout, we're, we're, we're devaluing or not valuing our future emotion. So you can do this also with, uh, wealth planning. And, and I know that some planners do that, you know, Hey, it's, uh, you know, my planner with me did it with the beach house. Hey, Phil, you know, Phil and Michelle, what do you guys really, really want? And we were like, well, we're going to do the beach house. You know, we're going to have a beach house. We'll have the kids there. We'll have the grandkids there. Okay. Imagine that, you know, so I went and imagined that really, really vividly. So that is the groundhog's day bias, uh, that we repeat, 
those same mistakes over and over again because tomorrow becomes the present and we're present biased. And then it becomes the present again two days from now. Every day is going to happen. That 35 years from now is going to happen. That's going to become the present just as much as today is. You know what I mean? So that's the Groundhog Day bias. And then the cure is to connect to it emotionally through visualization or any other way that you can really connect to it and to keep it with you, bring it up, bring it up often. I think of it, I I, I look at it or think of it almost, well, not daily, but weekly and certainly by months, I think about you know, what, what I want to be doing when my kids, when my grandkids are, are getting married and, uh, and, uh, where, how I want to be living and what I want to be doing. How can people find you on social media and learn more about the Institute? Uh, the Pearl Institute, you can Google that or just go to pearlinst.com, P-E-A-R-L-I-N-S-T.com. Uh, really the way to keep track of me is on Twitter, uh, at P Perlman, P P E A R L M A N, uh, on Twitter. And, uh, and I'm there often, uh, my newsletter is called prime cuts. It's at primecuts.substack.com. I write there weekly. Um, you can email me at pperlman at gmail.com, P-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N at gmail.com. Uh, I think that's, I think that's, I think I've exhausted all the ways to uh, get a hold of me there. That's it. Dr. Phil Perlman, thanks for being on the show today and helping us shift the conversation. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Shift with Ross Marino. Please visit humanfirst.live to learn more. This show is for general information purposes only and is not intended to provide recommendations or advice. Speak with a legal, tax, or financial advisor before making any decisions. Past performance references are historical and do not guarantee future results.